So it's almost too much to bear. Another week, another day, another tragedy. Last week, Michelle preached on the tragedy of Dallas, Baton Rouge, Minnesota. Wasn't all that long ago I preached on the tragedy of Orlando. Now we have the slaughter of the innocents in Nice, France, that beautiful spot that many of us have probably enjoyed on the bay there. Incredible carnage. All capped off with an unsuccessful but bloody coup in Turkey. Now, you will either forgive me or thank me for not preaching today overtly on these latest tragedies. But truth be told, any sermon that is faithful to the gospel is going to address at least indirectly this subject because God is love and we preach that love ultimately triumphs over evil. But let's dive right into this morning's story. It's a powerful and incredibly radical story, this story of Jesus' encounter with Mary and Martha. Although in our 21st century consciousness, it may not seem radical. And to fully understand its radicalness, we will in a minute consider it in relationship to last week's very radical story of the so-called Good Samaritan. But let's start by just considering the text as it stands. You may well have heard sermons preached on this in the past. Maybe the preacher asks something like, well, are you a Mary or are you a Martha? And maybe the preacher held up Martha as the paragon of the person who gets the nitty-gritty work of the church done, and Mary as the paragon of the contemplative, the person who is steeped in word and sacrament and prayer. And I'm here to tell you that that's at least half wrong, but more on that in a moment. So, aside from diving deeper into the text and its meaning, there's a lot we can take home just on the face of it, just from the plain words of the story. Lessons to live by. Number one, don't be a whiner. Martha is whining. Nobody likes a whiner, right? Jesus, Mary won't help me. Come on, give me a break. Number two, don't be a triangulator. You know what, a, what triangulation means, right? We're really good at it in the church. You know, let's say I do something to really tick off Joe. And instead of coming to me to seek redress, 
Joe instead goes over to Mary Catherine and says, let Lou, what, that's just, you gotta make him stop it. Well, you know, guess what? Didn't work for Martha and it wouldn't work here either. So when you got a problem with somebody, whether it's me or somebody unrelated to the church, go to that person. And what about that sibling thing going on between Martha and Mary? You know, life is short and blood should be thicker than water. And if anyone is not in right relationship with their siblings or a member of your family, I would urge you to seek amends to restore that family relationship. But the, the words that really speak to me and I think I hope will speak to many of you is when Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are distracted and worried about many things. Another translation says, Martha, you are disturbed and fretting about many things. How many of us today, let's be honest, fess up, how many of us are worried and distracted by many things? We live incredibly busy lives, and I know many people who are retired and who are busier than ever, right? And with all that bad stuff going on out in the world, it's awfully easy to be worried. And Jesus invites us all to take a deep breath, to try to simplify our lives, to get rid of the clutter, and to focus on what's important, God, family, friends. Now, there's a little irony in this passage, particularly when Martha is held up to be the paragon of the virtuous person. Well, actually, she's a terrible hostess, isn't she? Hospitality was incredibly important in the culture of Jesus' time and is still incredibly important in the culture of the Mideast. The good host or hostess isn't supposed to be dumping all of her problems on the, the guest and isn't supposed to be spending all the time in the kitchen but being a gracious hostess. So what is so radical about this seemingly simple story about Mary, Martha, and Jesus? Well, let's go back to last week because I want to put the two together. So last week we had the so-called Good Samaritan. Of course it's a Good Samaritan, right? We have Good Samaritan hospitals, Good Samaritans stop on the roadside and help people in trouble. Well, in Jesus' time, there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. That was an oxymoron. Samaritans were scum of the earth. They were dogs, mongrels, the bad guys. You see, the land of Samaria had been conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians had a policy when they took over a new country, a new land, to take many of the people from that place and relocate them elsewhere, bring people from another part of the empire into this place, and that helped keep things calm down and prevent uprisings. So from the standpoint of the Jews, Samaritans were not real Jews. 
They were at best half-breeds, and they didn't worship God in the right way in the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own temple in Samaria. So they were the lowest of the low. And anybody listening to Jesus' story would assume, of course, the priest and the Levites would end up being the hero. They would be shocked to discover the hero of the story, the one who demonstrates what it means to be a good neighbor, is the Samaritan. And in a blinding moment of inspiration, Jesus turns the world upside down and demolishes the barrier between Jew and Samaritan, black and white, straight and gay, and any other division we might be able to conjure up. And remember the purpose of that parable. It was in the context of the great commandment. The great commandment, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The smart-alecky lawyer, after understanding that yes, you will inherit eternal life if you love God and love your neighbor, challenges Jesus by saying, well, who is my neighbor? The Good Samaritan. Today's story, immediately thereafter, illustrates what it means to love God. Now, it's a little interesting. If Martha and Mary are the same Martha and Mary that live in Bethany with their brother Lazarus, who Jesus visits, then this story has been intentionally moved by the author of Luke to follow last week's story. Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem, but he's not in Bethany, which is just a couple of miles outside of the city. So it's intentionally put there to illustrate loving God, which is done by Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. And that is what is so radical about this story. We think, oh, nice, of course, Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, how lovely. Well, that was a total no-no in the culture of the day. Women were not permitted to sit at the feet of the master and listen to him. Only guys were allowed to sit at the feet of the master and listen. And they did that not only to hear the word of God, but they wanted to become rabbis themselves. So Mary is taking on a role left to men, and she not only wants to soak in and love God through Jesus, she herself may want to go on to be a rabbi, to be an evangelist, a preacher of the good news. And instead of chastising her. Jesus holds her up as the model, and again he breaks the distinction between male and female and says, of course a woman can be a full-fledged disciple of Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God for a long time in the Episcopal Church. Women have been full-fledged partners in ministry, both ordained and lay. Now, admittedly, we still have a ways to go because on average, priests who happen to be women can have a harder time finding a job and on average are paid less than men. But thanks be to God, women are equal partners in discipleship and ministry. And thanks be to God, you're not priests, 
but you can all be disciples of Jesus Christ. You are all worthy. Jesus has broken all of the barriers. He's turned the world upside down. So the old version that Martha is the paragon of those who do, and Mary is the paragon of those who are, who be, who are contemplatives, is half wrong. Yes, Mary is the model of loving God through soaking up the word and being uh, a disciple of Jesus, but it's not Martha that's the model. It's the Samaritan who is the model. At the end of last week's parable, Jesus says to that smart-alecky lawyer, go and do likewise. So to be disciples of Jesus Christ, are we called to go and do and love our neighbor? Or are we called to be to love God and to soak in the word? And the answer, of course, is yes. You can't do one without the other. Action without prayer and contemplation is just busyness. And contemplation and prayer, unless perhaps you are called to the monastic life, is, uh, shall we say, navel-gazing with little outcome. Radical love of God through the example of Mary, usurping the role that had heretofore been left to men, and the love of neighbor exemplified by the radical actions of the Samaritan who is the hero, not the villain. At the end of the day, it's about love. It's about radical love. And whether we're trying to deal with the evils of racism to promote racial justice and racial reconciliation, or whether we're dealing with the evils of terrorism and the other evils of the world, the only solution that I have to offer is the love of God through Jesus Christ, radical love of God and radical love of our neighbors. No one has put it better, in my opinion, than the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. In words that he spoke 30 years, 40, 40, more than 40 years ago, You've heard me quote part of these words in a previous sermon. I hope you have seen this quote on our website that we posted in response to the Dallas tragedies. Here's what Dr. King reminds us of. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence. Adding a deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only love can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Amen.